Though it's already been mentioned, what a delightful blessing it is to appreciate the first day of the week. This particular Sunday, we again come together as the Bible commands us to, and already we've already had opportunity to reflect upon the power of prayer, the joy of singing, the fellowship one with another, and other aspects of our service together. Certainly today, as you've already taken a look at the title, no doubt, you're aware of the fact that amazingly, interestingly, we have come to lesson number 12 on our series of lessons in which we have given attention to various fundamental elements of the faith. We began back on the second Sunday in January this year. That's been obviously many weeks ago at this point. But once a month we have invested a particular Sunday morning lesson on a study of the fundamentals of the faith. Over the course of that time we have thought about the existence of God. We've reflected upon the nature of the Christ. We have given emphasis to the establishment and the nature of the church. We even reflected upon the Bible and the place that it occupies in the matter of your faith and mine. In addition to that, we appreciated the elements of worship, the understanding that went with them, and we've even thought about the essence of faith, just to name a few. Today, what about prayer? Lesson number 12 in our series the assurance that goes with the element of prayer. May I invite you for the next few moments today to not only reflect with me upon that, but as we use the Word of God to challenge our thinking on some of that, we will be encouraged in our faith. You may notice about the middle of that particular slide before you, surely none of us as faithful Christians would question or doubt the statement that prayer is a fundamental and powerful part and what a privilege it is in the life of a Christian. Without doubt, the Bible, of course, talks at length about the nature of prayer, the specifics and the particulars of it. And today, we're going to really look at just a selected few of those ideas. Surely one of the things we could though already say is, if our prayer life isn't as it ought to be, you know, we are reaching the end of one year, and if God blesses us with just a few more days, we'll start another one. But maybe this could be an opportune time to at least reinvigorate our prayer life, to make it as we know it should be. And today we'll see some of the essences of what the Bible says about why we might wish to do it that way. Let's begin the lesson, though, in this positive appreciation. Would you think with me for a few minutes at least about various promises that the Bible either made in the distant past, or continues to assert today relative to the essence of prayer and God's reaction to it. Why don't we start in Psalm 34? Now that was written by David, and certainly he knew himself about a number of afflictions and trials in life, and often he found himself in rather challenging and dangerous circumstances, at least before he became king. And yet we notice in Psalm 34, 6, that David expressly was able to say, The Lord heard the cry of the poor man and saved him. There was a direct statement about what God had done in light of those who were poor, admittedly, who had made petition to Him. Could I invite you to notice there's something remarkable about the fact that the God of heaven not only heard, but He, in fact, conscripted affairs to deliver or save the one who had petitioned Him. That's phenomenal. To understand that a being as God, powerful, awesome, amazing, 
capable of doing anything that's consistent with His will. And yet, He delivered this one who had appealed to Him. Look at the next one. Again, taken from Psalm 34. The ears of the Lord, we are told there, was open to the cry of the righteous. That is to say, those who had directed their lives in harmony with His will, which at that time was the old law of Moses. And yet the text says God's ear was directed to that person, open to them in such a way that, of course, the blessing and favor directed to that was granted to them. One more time, we, again, we begin to notice something amazing. Quite often there have been those motivated, I suppose, by various observational matters who tell us God orchestrated and fashioned His universe and then He just sits off at a distance and watches it with no interaction really with it. To the Bible-believing person, that is simply not true. And you and I know it isn't true. For one reason, prayer. Prayer changes things. It turns things in a different direction. Look at this poor man. Look at this righteous particular matter you and I just noted. Don't you find it interesting that in 1 Peter 3.12, that text is quoted and applied to you and me. May I say again, that text is quoted and applied to you and to me today. Namely, that the ears of the Lord are open to the cries and the prayers of those who are His children that fills our hearts with confidence, with assurance, with hope, with the recognition that God loves the members of His family. He certainly loves all people, of course, but to those who are in His family, oh, what a special relationship as a father has to his children. And isn't that what Brother Joe read a moment ago from Matthew 7? Look at that next statement on the slide. Take it from the same chapter, but this time verse 17. Psalm 34 Verse 17, the Lord hears and delivers the righteous out of all their trouble. Would you for a minute just imagine the extensiveness of that statement? All their trouble. Now certainly it's fair to say that as that statement was made, oh, what a great relief to life that can be to understand that there's a means of deliverance. The next statement is this one, taken from Psalm 145. Verse 19, those that fear the Lord, God hears them. And not only that, He saves them. Now remember, that word save is part and parcel in Hebrew of deliverance. And so we've seen a number of things in the Psalms about God hearing the prayers of the righteous, extending deliverance, salvation if you please. Today, as you and I give thought to the world in which we live, I hope we never lose sight of the great power and privilege and blessing that goes with prayer. Now let's let the Lord enter into our discussion, shall we? In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, this is the text read in our hearing just a moment ago. Jesus Himself declared, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. That text, of course, is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And over that course of three chapters, so many timeless and amazing truths that turns the world of religion on its head. 
And yet in the midst of it, we find the Lord asserting this. Ask, seek, and knock. And by the way, have you ever noticed the first letter of all those three words? It's a good way to remember this passage. A-S-K. Ask, seek, and knock. And as you reflect upon it, he goes on to say this. It shall be opened unto you. And now the next verse continues. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. I hope we're each impressed with the degree of assurance found in a passage like that. When he didn't say it might be opened, he didn't say it perhaps will be revealed. There's a rather impressive certainty, don't you think? As you and I hear the Lord Himself say, To him that knocketh, it shall be open. I suppose in some ways that challenges each of us by making this observation. Have I knocked the way I should? Have I asked the way that I might? You know, those questions might will say more about you and me than anything else. Maybe I've been too derelict. Maybe I've been too unwilling to ask. Or for whatever reason, I haven't done it. Because the Lord made an assurance here. He promised those of that day, those wonderful people who heard Him preach this, and of course you and me still today. The next verse then petitions it in these words. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? This helps us appreciate that there's no under, misunderstanding what the Lord's talking about. There is no loving father who, if his little boy asks of him, as verse number 9 indicates, some bread, the dad's not going to hand him a rock. He just won't do it. The son's needing something to eat. He's needing fortification, sustenance for life, and dad's not going to give him a rock. Then what about our Heavenly Father? When we ask and seek and knock and make petition of Him of something that is important for life, is God going to give us a rock when we need bread? Is He going to give us these other matters that would not be that which is the order of the moment? Look at the next verse. Or if He ask a fish, will He give him a serpent? What loving father can you imagine handing the little boy a snake when the boy has asked for a fish? Isn't it a rather easy thing to imagine? No father's going to do this. And yet God is a great heavenly father. Then should you and I anticipate He is not going to provide for us that which we've asked, that which we've sought, that which we have knocked in order to appreciate? The assurance is amazing, isn't it? It might well be then in verse 11, the Lord finishes that by saying this, If ye then, please note the adverb then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts to them that ask Him? One more time, maybe it's a worthwhile thought. Have you not asked as we should? Have we petitioned Him as we might? Or have we been too quick to rely upon materialistic matters of our own thinking rather than asking and seeking and knocking? The assurance, again, is a rather amazing consideration. Let's close that slide like this. In James 5 verse 16, that well-known passage that touches the subject before us today, 
Aren't we reminded there that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? We noted a moment ago, again, that prayer does lead to things being different than what they otherwise might have been. And yet we notice in that that the effectual, fervent prayer, that is, an effective, heartfelt prayer of petition, is effective. It avails much. One last thing then might be this. As you and I give thought to prayer and the place that it occupies in our life and heart, aren't we reminded that for those that love the Lord, it is through that avenue that we appreciate the opportunity to receive so many things from God. And not only that, He blesses us in ways that includes deliverance out of troubles and deliverance out of other things that may well face us. Well, those matters then is somewhat of a foundation. Let's take just a moment and perhaps build, using the Word of God, some reflections that might continue to motivate us in light of a thriving and fervent and vibrant life of prayer. The top of that slide then might be this. Could I ask it this way? What might be some consequences that would come your way or mine if... Our life of prayer is not as it ought to be. And maybe again, this would offer us some motivation, some consideration. And it begins in Luke 18, verse number 1. Jesus there rather directly taught to those in His hearing that men ought always to pray. But the verse doesn't stop at that point because He quickly offers for us a thought as to what will happen if one's prayer is not along that line. He says, men not always to pray and not to faint. It would appear then, from the teaching of the Lord then, that fainting may well be an immediate consequence of failure in prayer. Now, the Lord wasn't talking about that medical condition of becoming momentarily unconscious. That's not the kind of fainting He meant. In fact, I've defined it for you on the slide. That word faint literally means to be utterly spiritless. That is to say, to be wearied out, to be exhausted, to lose heart. That is to say, one's characteristic integrity in light of that work is zapped. Have you and I ever reached a point in the Christian life when you start wondering, is it worth it? You see those in the world who often thrive maybe far more than you and I do from a, a materialistic standpoint. And have you and I ever began to wonder, well, maybe, maybe that it just isn't quite worth it. May I say prayer is going to be a problem in that. You had not been praying enough. I had not been praying enough if I ever start thinking that way because that's exactly what's involved in fainting as the Lord described it to lose heart, to become weird or tired to the point where you lose the enthusiasm or energy for this. May we never lose sight of the fact the Christian life is absolutely worth it, regardless what it involves. The next verse to which I would turn your attention is James chapter 1. James gave a lengthy reminder to us, didn't he, about the features, part of which read like this. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. James 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. Did you notice 
that there is connected to a degree of faithfulness. A degree of faithfulness. And so if you and I have lapsed into faithlessness, if we have lapsed to a point where at least for a time we were not faithful to the Lord, it's almost a guarantee prayer was not as it ought to have been. We'd gone too long without prayer. We had failed to pray as we should have. There's great strength in prayer. It's a reminder of the God that we serve and His care for us. In addition to that, in Luke 1 verse 18, perhaps we have an explicit example of this. Have you ever thought about the case of Zechariah? Now you and I know him best as the father of John the Baptist. And you may remember in Luke 1 verses 5 and following, we have this amazing picture of this man who lived blamelessly. And yet something amazing happens. He receives word that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to bear a son despite the fact they're rather advanced in years. And Zechariah is shocked. Maybe that indicates he hadn't been praying as he should have for this. Maybe it indicates he had not the degree of faithfulness he might have had because you may remember the angel stuck, uh, rather struck him dumb until the child was born because he doubted. What about your faith and mine? The reading of James would lead us to say that if we're given to these appreciations where we turn our attention to the matters of worldliness too much, we might well have reached the point where that faithlessness is just one symptom of a prayer life that's not as it should be. Failure in prayer without doubt contributes to weakness in moments of temptation. Didn't Jesus pray it like this in Matthew 26, 41? Didn't the Lord Himself make acknowledgement of the fact in Matthew chapter 6? When He reminded us that when we pray, we should make note the evil one is before us. And we should pray that we are not thus one who comes into the clutches of Him. We should pray that we could be delivered from the evil one. If we don't pray for that... Aren't we inviting weakness in terms of failing, in in, certainly in that light? Are you and I adept then at praying, God, help me. Lord, please help me. I recognize there's a weakness in my life and I want to overcome it. And I need your strength to assist me. Open my eyes that I can see the moments of those temptations so that I can sidestep them and not fall underneath them. May you and I have a prayer and earnestness in light of things along that line. God's promised He'll help us. You'll notice that we do seemingly find biblical texts that remind us of this. Failure in our prayer life can be a contributing factor in our failure in dealings with others. Now, isn't it true that when someone else asks us to forgive them for something they've done, we know that we're commanded to, in fact, do that. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. But along that line, should we not remember that the Heavenly Father has forgiven us a far, far more? And maybe in that light, that's again a reminder our prayer life has failed in that regard. We haven't exalted the name of the Lord and what He's done. 
in the way that we might have done it. Failure to pray withholds praise from God that He justly deserves. Isn't it true? Our prayers in many ways ought to begin with sentiments like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. To declare the sanctified character of the name of God. If we don't pray as we should, we're withholding that kind of declaration, that kind of proclamation. That prayer rather quickly went on to highlight the will of God. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that not a reminder that our God controls all of this? To close that slide, one final thought is this. There's an amazing encouragement in the Bible seen in the lives of men no less than Paul in Ephesians six eighteen, We see there a prayer that he prayed. He prayed for understanding on the part of his faithful brethren. He prayed that they might have an understanding of what God will bequeath to them. He prayed that they might have the strength and sustenance to stay on guard against the matters of the things around them. That's what he prayed for. You and I certainly would do well to pray that for ourselves and for our loved ones and for the church. And yea, for those who are, of course, not inside the wonderful kingdom of God. Those, you see, who have chosen to walk away from it. Those who've chosen to lead a life not consistent with the teaching of the Bible. How earnestly we can pray that they might come to realize the decision they've made and the sad consequences that it will no doubt have but also for those, of course, who've never come to know the Lord, that they might come to appreciate a kind of life wherein the power of prayer is so easily appreciated. On this next slide, I suppose there is one matter then, in light of what we've studied so far, that might be quickly something you would mention. Preacher, if prayer is so powerful... And if God has promised to answer the prayers of His children, then could you help me understand why my prayer has not been answered? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. And so far I have not seen any evidence. Could you not spend the remainder of the lesson, though brief it might be, reflecting upon what might that indicate and how we ought never to allow observations like that to crush our faith and bring us to a point of doubting God or doubting the appreciation that goes with prayer. Let's begin at the top of that slide. Jesus made a statement in Mark 11, verse 24. As He spoke to His apostles, He assured them that whatever they asked for, they'd receive. Now notice, that, that, that was a rather incredible statement. Those apostles were granted the wonderful opportunity that that for which they petitioned the God of heaven would be granted them. Could I point out in John 14, 13, similar words are found again, directed in the sweetness of that hour to those apostles. And Jesus made that statement to them the night before He was crucified. In 1 John 3, verse 22, however, there's a statement I would wish to read. This one was not merely directed to apostles. It includes you and me, and this is what it says. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments. 
and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. It's not difficult to understand what that verse is saying. The Apostle John, as he penned this centuries ago, he said, whatever we ask, we receive of Him. And then he added these descriptives, because we keep His commandments, and we do those things pleasing in His sight. And so again, a person may thus offer the thought, I have tried to the best of my understanding to be faithful to the Lord, to do that which is His bidding, and yet I've prayed earnestly for weeks, for months, perhaps years. And my prayer, as far as I can tell, has not been answered. There has been no changes that I can see. There has been no modifications that I can see. And so someone might be quick to ask then, tell me about prayer. It looks like it's done nothing. Let's take a few moments and think about this, shall we? That text I just read in 1 John 3, 22, may well have led to questions in the mind of some over the years, and maybe it's crossed some of our minds. Before we close the book though, on that subject and leave ourselves in a moment of question or doubt, let's ask what otherwise the Bible has to say about this so that we're sure we have all the information before we reach a conclusion. May I offer a few thoughts? Several of them are going to surround maybe what will be the obvious, but nonetheless, I think it's very rewarding for us to appreciate them. First is this. That statement that was made in 1 John 3.22, remember, there are four other chapters in that book, and they highlight the supremacy of God, the nature of the fullness of His will, and that that will is what is absolutely to be accomplished and done. We cannot take this verse and divorce it from them. That is to say, use it to contradict them. And yet along that same line, notice what we read. God's timetable, God's time frame is not necessarily ours. His vision, His perspective, His approach may be entirely distinct when it comes to time. So much so that I would offer you that thought you'll notice about two-thirds of the way along that slide. One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. We understand that passage from 2 Peter 3.8. And if we have been shown anything in the Old Testament, we have been shown so many examples how that the fulfillment of God's assertions and the fulfillment of what was petitioned of Him often did not come in a matter of minutes. It didn't come even in a matter of days. I offered you the thought of Genesis 12. God brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was known as Abram at that time. And a promise was made, and it would appear that Abram was rather fervent in prayer. And yet, when was the child of promise born? It was not the next year. We understand even under the matter of pregnancy, nine months would be needed. Twenty-five years would pass before Isaac was born. Isaac was already, I'm sorry, Abraham was already 75 when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees. A man we would not call young even then. It would take 25 years. Is that not a reminder that the time frame that may have been on the mind of Abraham was not the time frame that God had in mind? 
In fact, the idea Abraham had, remember, brought about Ishmael and the problems correspondent to that. And even Abraham's assertion, here's my servant Eleazar in Genesis 15 too. Can't he be the heir? God said, no, he's not the one I have in mind. I'll take care of this in due time. Twenty-five years passed. Today, might you and I appreciate when we pray, may our faith not weaken. When that prayer isn't answered the next day or the next week, God's time frame may work far the better on a much more extensive amount of time. Isn't that a good thing for us to remember? I've also invited you to notice in 2 Samuel 7, verses 7 and following, how that there God to David made again a dramatic promise. It would take a thousand years for that to be fulfilled. Think about that. David never lived to see it. His son never lived to see the fullness of what God had in mind. It took ten centuries before God brought about the coming of the Christ into the world and the establishment of the kingdom referred to in that passage. Isn't that amazing? God's time frame. What about this observation? This one is certainly one that leads to questions for you and me. Have you noticed the many times today in the discussion of our verses how that the promise and assurance was directed to those that were righteous? That was stated twice in, the, in Psalm 34, highlighted in 1 Peter 3.12, asserted here in 1 John 3.22, Am I righteous? Am I convicted in terms of obedience to the commandments of the Lord as I could be? If not, I shouldn't expect Him to answer my prayer. I shouldn't expect Him to direct toward me that which I am anticipating. Again, maybe it leads to at least an examination. I've invited you to notice in the verses there at the bottom of that slide that there's actually a passage in Proverbs 28 verse 9 that hammers home a rather remarkable point if I could use that adjective. In Proverbs 28 verse number 9, we read this, the prayer of the unfaithful. The prayer, that is to say, of those who are not directed toward the things of God is abomination. That is to say, God hates it. If you're not going to follow my will, don't bother trying to pray to me. In essence, is what the ancient writer is telling us. Maybe you and I then could think with care and make sure that we are living that life of obedience to His commandments. May I again notice with you the closing part of that text in 1 John 3.22. Because we keep His commandments. Because we do those things pleasing in His sight. If that's descriptive of you and me, then again, we have these other matters to consider. But if I'm not righteous, I ought not anticipate. If I'm not obeying His will, I shouldn't anticipate His direction of those blessings for which I've asked. Isn't it rather fascinating to notice one final thing as you and I close that slide? Haven't we been taught then the sweet beauty and power that goes with prayer? Because it really brings us to one final set of observations. I reserve this passage until now in 1 John 5, verse 14. I mentioned earlier that John had other things to say about prayer. Listen to this one. This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. 
And if we know that He hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. It may well be that's the strongest passage we've read yet, at least as it touches this subject. John said this in verse 14. The actual Greek word there is boldness. The King James called it confidence. But this is the boldness that we have in Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. That's the next question I need to ask. Is my prayer consistent with the will of God? Is it in line with that which is His teaching in the sense that, again, it's according to His will? The only way you and I know what the will of God is is by the fact He's revealed it. We can't guess it. We can't think on His level, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. But we do have His revelation. And so is my prayer consistent with His will? Have you heard someone say, perhaps almost making fun of the Bible, well, I prayed for a million dollars and God didn't give it to me. Come on now. Is that according to His will? Now, if you're intending to give every dime of that to the church, maybe so. But if you're intending to use the lion's share of it for yourself, let's face it, is that really the will of the Lord? It's interesting to notice in passages such as this one that the next verse goes on to say, if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we petitioned of Him. It is an interesting thing to then ask, is my will tuned to what's spiritual? Is that what I'm primarily asking God for? That's not by any means to say that the physical things in life aren't important. We understand that those are necessities. But is that all I ever pray for? Do you ever pray for an increase in faith? Do you ever pray that you might know what to say to that person who's not a faithful Christian? That you might have at the moment the right things to challenge their thinking, to cause them to maybe redirect the order of their life? Do you ever pray that that person who's not a Christian at all and never has been, that you might be able to pray that things in their life might be constructed so that they would have a heart ready to hear? Do we all pray that as often as we might? Maybe we ought to rethink some of the things to include in our prayers. You'll notice next on that slide is this. Jesus, of course, included that as a vital part of His prayer in Matthew 26. Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me. You and I know that it wasn't the Father's will because the cup didn't pass from Him. And so, do we not learn in that that one of the things that God may then directly tell us, the answer to the prayer is no. The answer to the prayer is no. You've prayed this, and in the infinite wisdom of God, He looks down the stream of time and says, if I granted that, it would not be in your best interest. It would not work the way you think it will. And therefore, He says no. You see, no is an answer to prayer just as much as yes is. Sometimes, haven't you been blessed when God said no? Haven't you found yourself in life reflective on times when God said no? And sometime later, upon reflection, you were very happy that He did. You see, no is also an answer. So we've learned so far that two answers in addition to an immediate yes are, wait a while 
and no. Both of those are also answers. And in according to the will of God, we appreciate that they can well be wonderfully blessed answers as well. As you close that slide, with me might we note this. The Apostle Paul prayed three times for the removal of a thorn in the flesh, and God said no. He said no. It would not be in your eternal best interest for me to remove it. There may well be supposed thorns in your life or mine that really serve a purpose to help keep us grounded in a way that we could be faithful and proper servants. If that were removed, you and I might falter. I hope you and I have learned then today that we still have every reason to have great assurance in light of faith, in light of prayer. And these other answers that the Bible helps us appreciate lead us to again never doubt the nature of God's promise. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. As you and I close this lesson today, I hope we've been reminded that prayer is a tremendous privilege. His faithful children are granted this privilege. And remember, the prayer of those that are unfaithful is an abomination. God doesn't want to hear it. In John 9, 31, we even read there that God does not hear the prayers of sinners. Is your life a life of righteousness and obedience and faithfulness? If so, avail yourself of prayer for the reasons we've learned today, that you not faint, that you properly honor and praise God, and that as a righteous person you can then use the benefit of that prayer in a way to be a blessing to yourself and to many, many others. Through it all, may we never forsake the God of heaven. May we understand that prayer, as portrayed to us in the Bible, does allow us to appreciate what we've learned today, inclusive of matters connected to various answers that God might give. Today, those outside the kingdom of the Lord and need to be inside that kingdom, won't you think with earnestness about your situation? Won't you think with a great deal of humility about the place that you now are. Jesus went to a cross by His own choice that you could be saved. He loves you. You're worth it. But He wants you to make that decision to be a follower of Him. You can't remain distant from Him, claim to follow Him, and hope that that'll be good enough. You are assured in the Bible we all are that it won't be. But yet, as that blood is ready to flow and absolutely wash away your sins, you could leave this building refreshed, revived, renewed, faithful in every way. We want you to experience that, and we're here to encourage and help and assist however we might do it. If you've never become a Christian, believe on the Lord with all of your heart. Make repentance of those sins. That is to say, turn aside from them with intent to commit them no more. Confess the marvelous name of the Lord as the only Messiah and be baptized for the remission of those sins. Again, if you have known that way of life, and maybe prayer was a vital part of your existence then, but over the course of time, things have changed, life has brought about difficulties and challenges, and you find yourself now in a place where your prayer life is maybe even nearly non-existent, or at least it's weak. May you be renewed and revived and reinvigorated as you give thought to, again, maybe a new year, 
and a new closeness with God. We want you to know that we're here to encourage. If we could study with you, help you, we'd like to do that. This moment, a hymn of encouragement, Brother Cale has announced, and we're going to stand and sing that. And if we could be of some assistance now, we'd love to do that while together we stand and while we sing.